We're nearly at the end of our first day of practice together. And uh, I can't offer any guarantees, but uh, sometimes people say that the, the first day can be one of the most difficult, one of the, uh, the most challenging days as we arrive on a retreat and we find uh, so many of the things that are around for us in our lives, things that are around for us in our hearts and minds, uh, are brought here with us and we see them more clearly, the things that are lovely, but also the things that are difficult, also the things that are challenging. And to be removed from our usual means of dealing with those things, we were saying yesterday, you know, just switching on the TV or looking at the internet, phoning a friend, getting something from the fridge, uh, all of our usual tricks to make us feel sort of okay uh, are not here. So it can be quite a raw experience to arrive on retreat. Um, and in one of the groups we were reflecting uh, about the way that coming on retreat here is in some ways like going to a different country and uh, where the, the rules are different, the norms of behavior are different, the expectations are a little bit different. And again, there's that feeling of Settling into that unfamiliarity. <coughs> and wondering whether there'd been enough of a, a guidebook or a, a phrase book to help us navigate this new territory. So, in some ways, perhaps that's what I'm offering this evening in this talk, is uh, a little bit more um, guidance or suggestions for how we can how we can be with our experience on retreat, how we can work with all of the different things that arise. And uh, often on the first evening of a retreat, we reflect on the hindrances to meditation, the obstacles, the things that feel as if they're getting in our way. Uh, and these can feel very much around, particularly on, on the first day. Um, and so I wanted to do that um, this evening um, using a, a formula that many of us use, which is called RAIN, which I'll explain more about. Um, but also perhaps slightly different than certainly I sometimes do, looking at a particular sutta of the Buddhas, who, where he gives some very interesting suggestions about how we work with the various things that arise in Meditation, in particular, the different patterns of thought that can be around, and how we can we can work with those. I'm sometimes a, a little bit reluctant even to to sort of use the word hindrance in terms of meditation because sometimes that that brings up a particular mindset that there's something in our experience that's in my way. There's some obstacle. There's something here that somehow shouldn't be here and needs to be moved out of the way. Something that's blocking me. Um, and sometimes, again, that, that even that beginning way of thinking about this is a hindrance to meditation may not be so helpful. But these can be patterns that can be around, patterns that are around when we sit in meditation, and also patterns that are very much around in our lives. A sense of really wanting something, wanting something that's absent. Really being pulled to something that's not here and feeling, if only I had this, things would be so much better. All the times when we feel irritated, fed up, wanting to push things away. The times we feel restless or full of worry. All the times when we're very sleepy and drowsy and dreamy and just drifting off. And those occasions when we feel full of doubt, uncertainty. Was this the right retreat to come on? Is this the right kind of meditation for me? Am I the right kind of person to be doing this? And sometimes people might think, oh, the hindrances, this is a you know, beginner's thing to talk about in meditation. But for me, I mean, what would it be like to really feel that we could wisely respond to those patterns in our lives? How would our lives be, be if there was that way of responding to wisely to, the, to our desire, to our anger, rage, irritation, 
to our worry, a person who's really able to say, yeah, I can be with these patterns, I know how to work with them, I know how to reflect on them, make space around them. It's no small thing at all. <laughs> it's absolutely uh, revolutionary, really, the freedom that can come from learning how to understand these patterns, how to relate to them in a wise and skillful way. And so I mentioned this uh, acronym RAIN that we sometimes use, and the first uh, of these is R, which stands for recognize. So we can recognize these patterns when they're there. And I was just, intim as I was just intimating, this makes a, a massive difference, a huge difference. So if I, for instance, take an, the example of uh, sense desire, if I'm sitting here in meditation and I start to really get into this idea that I'd like to be in Spain, and really what I should have done is not come to Devon on an Easter retreat, but it would have been much better in Spain. And I'm really beginning to think, okay, well, would it have been Barcelona? And this sort of whole image starting to build in my mind around that. And, you know, I, this is no good. I can't be in Devon. I can't be in this place. I can't be in this hall doing this. And it's getting more and more elaborate. Now, if there's no recognition that there's some sense desire there, if there's no recognition, if I really believe it, I really buy into it, then it's as if that's all I've got to do in order to feel okay. I can't possibly feel okay in Devon on retreat. In order to feel okay, I must be in Barcelona. The more we believe that, you see how it tells us a certain story, sense desire. It tells us that if we had that thing, then there would be some really complete, some wonderful <coughs> fulfillment. It simultaneously tells us that what's here and now, what's in this moment, is not enough. There's a sense of lack, a sense of absence. So the hindrances tell us a story. And if we're not, if we don't recognize, ah, there's a hindrance present, then we simply believe that story. So it's a, it's a huge thing to recognize. It's as if there's, um, so way I sometimes think about it, that, that there's a filter through our experience. So. It's not just that reality somehow is there and we're just completely aware of things as they are with no filtering, no shaping, no um, extra things added by whatever state of mind we're in. But our experience of the world in any given moment is constructed out of all of the, the patterns and habits that are around that shape our perceptions in those moments. So recognition, recognizing the hindrance, really shifts it. It's like, okay, so no, it's no, no longer an absolute, ultimate, definite iron law that I need to be in Barcelona and I can't be in Newton Abbott. <laughs> we, we've shifted the perspective. Oh, there's, a, there's a pattern in the mind that's making it appear like that. There's a pattern in the mind that's making me believe. And so then we can begin to relate to that pattern, work with that pattern. But until we recognize, we're simply unconscious within it. I apologize if this is revealing uh, a little too much, this uh, story. But uh, it, it's sometimes helpful to have this, this sense of a personal connection with this. But... Um, one time I really remember this was uh, in a state of mind of infatuation. I noticed, you know, some years ago, um, before I was married, and then there was this person, and I just, I just really noticed this state of mind that was so strong. I don't know. And again, I'm taking the risk that many of you, if not all of you, can somehow identify that. You know, when we're really infatuated with a person, and and it, it was really strong. And I, I remember just saying to myself, well, you know what. Well, What's meditation got to say about this? Well, how can I reflect upon this state of mind? And it really was as if the state of mind was saying, you know, to be with this person would be just unbelievable. You know, all my heart's desires would be fulfilled. It was really that feeling. And so I remember sort of saying to myself, like you give yourself a bit of a talking to sometimes. <laughs> it was saying either there's some kind of hindrance present or that's the ultimate truth, that my well-being completely depends on this person. 
And you can see just framing the question in that way begin to began to soften it. And I could see, well, hang on, this is not this is not an ultimate truth. This is something being created. This is something being constructed here. Similarly, with recognition, if we recognize when we're in a state of ill will, it's very helpful. If we don't recognize we're in a state of ill will, we're just in that situation. That person is intrinsically, essentially, right in their very bones, an irritating being. <laughs> you know, and it feels like that sometimes. The story that ill will takes us. This person is impossible. Nobody could deal with them. And if again, if we believe that, it just sets in motion certain strategies in relation to that person. We might avoid them, we might send them an incredibly hostile email, and all the various things we might do, might gossip around them. But again, if we can see, and this is the recognition, it's, it's, it's to some degree liberating in its, in its own right, we can see there's something being created here. It's not that for every moment, of this person's life, right from the very moment they were born, right to this moment. There's been nothing in this person but just this essence of irri irritation. <laughs> you know, this is somehow the way that I'm seeing them in relation to what's happening. Some complex creation between how they're behaving, how I'm receiving that, my patterns, their patterns. So we recognize these hindrances, we recognize them. And I would say again, a certain healthy skepticism towards the stories that they tell us. Yeah, a healthy skepticism towards the stories that they tell us. So the, the second part of this reign is to um, accept, to make space for these patterns. Again, I think this is important, as I mentioned at the beginning, with some uh, just wanting to qualify in a way this word hindrance. That a certain logical state of mind says, here we go, here's a hindrance, so I need to get rid of it, this shouldn't be here. How can I immediately eradicate this thing? Whereas this acceptance is really also saying, let's make space for what's in our experience. Let's really feel what's there. Really feel what's there. So, for instance, with if we use ill will as an example, aversion, irritation, anger. If we can really feel into that, so we're not immediately saying, "Okay, there's irritation. How how can I stop that being there?" But really, what's it like to to feel that? To notice it in the body, to bring the awareness into the body, in the heart area, in the belly perhaps in the hands, around the eyes, really noticing, really being with it, breathing with it, making space to feel that. And very often when we do that with the sense of exploration, again, if I think about ill will for a moment, we can at times feel the hurt, the feeling threatened, the sense of not being safe that can be underneath that. And to feel that more fully begins to very often release that pattern. Yeah. Um, and so this sense of acceptance too is also pointing to the fact that um, many times it's the resistance to these hindrances. The feeling that they shouldn't be there, I don't want them, let's get rid of them. The resistance itself of course is like a compound Hindrance. We're adding aversion to aversion, or we're adding aversion to worry, or whatever it is. Yeah, so making space, really spacious awareness. Sometimes I think it's quite helpful to be quite literal about that making space. I know if you feel in meditation, sometimes it's as if we're, we're meditating all in our head, and the whole awareness is just here, and things feel rather small, rather squashed, rather cramped. And so, certainly in this hall, sometimes we really have a, a, an experience of the physical space. I mean, there's high ceilings and the height and the space in the hall. So you can feel that whatever's going on is here, it's around. 
but it's happening in a much, much, much bigger space. And so, you know, certainly we can begin with a hall and then we don't have to be limited by that by any means. We can sense what's beyond that, the trees, the environment, the sky, the fastness, I mean, just the space. So we can, we can imagine that, bring that in. You see how that can change the perspective on some of these hindrances, the thing that feels so, oh, this is it, this is so tricky, it's so sticky, it's so caught up, it's so urgent, I need to think this, I can't do anything else, absolutely stuck, small, constricted pattern. But the space makes it feel different. doesn't necessarily mean it disappears, but it's again part of that acceptance, holding it in a bigger space. The um, eye of the rain is to investigate. And so for me, it's very helpful to hold these two, uh, two ways of, of being with the hindrances together, really. There's the acceptance, but also this sense of investigation. Um, and sometimes, and I think I've certainly been down this, this road in my practice sometimes. Sometimes we can have a particular way of working that becomes almost somewhat habitual. So for me, I think I definitely had a period of practice when my um, favorite phrase would have been, I'm being with. You know, so the acceptance part is very strong. You know, I'm being with this. I'm being with the aversion. I'm being with the ill will. I'm being with the doubt. I'm just feeling it. I'm being with it. I'm being with it. Um, but as if that was the, um, the be-all and end-all, that if we could just be with or be you know, aware of these patterns, that that was somehow always the wise response. So this investigation also is pointing to other ways that we, we're bringing in a curiosity. We're questioning our experience, not just this sense of, ah, oh, here it is, this same pattern again that's been here for a long time. I'm just going to be with that. We might think, well, where's this coming from? What's sustaining this? What does it feel like in the body? What are the conditions when it's present? What are the conditions when it's absent? So we bring a questioning, curious quality to, to what's happening. One of the things that's very interesting to investigate is this relationship between, um, say, sensations in the body uh, states of mind and thoughts, um, and to investigate this more and more in our in our own experience and seeing the connection between these things. So, something that I've certainly noticed and uh, I know many people reflect on as well is how there might be a trigger event. Something happens, and then there's a certain emotion around that. So, something say presses a button, and we're off thinking about something. Uh, we may be thinking about that event. But then in that state of mind, that state of mind seems to somehow also generate other um, thoughts when we felt the same way. So there's the first situation, the triggered button, there's certain feelings, emotion around that. Then other thoughts also around that um, weren't to do with that situation, but almost being brought into being because that emotion is around quite strongly. Uh, perhaps unhappily, we can see this sometimes. And if you notice, if you're having, a, should we politely say, a heated conversation with someone, <laughs> perhaps a bit more to the point, you're having an argument with someone, basically. You know, you, you've noticed that when these heated conversations don't go so well, we start bringing in everything else. And somebody's done something that's upset us. Okay, why have you done this? Da, da, da. And you always do that as well. Something totally unrelated to the original thing comes in. And then they start saying, yeah, and you've done that. And then there was a time you did this. And then we're just rolling through all of these things that we start bringing up. But then again, this is, this is one of the, the things we can explore, that states of mind, state, there's some sort of emotion around, and it brings in thoughts that are associated with that. So part of the investigation sometimes is to begin to put down or let, uh, let go of the, the thoughts, the storyline around what's going on and to feel again in the body, what happens if I just feel this? 
bring the breath to this calm around this. And then we can sometimes feel that those thoughts um, are just they're just they're just not around so much. They're just not sustained because the uh, the emotional state, the state of mind, or the tensions in the body that were part of generating those thoughts just absent. So those thoughts are just not there. And then investigating that in, in other ways. I mean, you, you, can, you can actually play with this. So there may be other times when so there's a situation that's disturbing, situation that's upsetting, it's all around that, the thoughts. And then a, a time when maybe the emotions are calm, still, peaceful. You can bring the same situation to mind, and maybe the thoughts about it will then be very different. Yeah. It's part of the investigation, the connection between sensations in the body, sensations, between the emotions, between thoughts. By the way, this is a very helpful thing to do. You know, sometimes when you, you feel totally unable to make a decision, if you had this experience when your thoughts are buzzing from one thing to the next, should I do A, and could do A, and that's okay, and then it feels a bit agitated, maybe not A, or maybe I should do B, and then you're thinking about B, and B seems good, but if I did B, I wouldn't be able to do A, and your mind is bouncing between these two things. But there are certain states of mind, it's very helpful to know, certain states of mind when there are are no solutions on that level. <laughs> and to really recognize that, when it's not helpful to continue thinking, trying to work out, trying to get to the bottom of something. Because those thoughts are themselves generated by this agitation that's underneath it. So we can feel the agitation calm, the agitation be in a different place. And then I've certainly had the experience, then you come back to think about it, and okay, A would be fine, and B would be pretty good too. <laughs> That the sting has been taken out of it that was there from these emotions. So we can recognize, we can accept, we can begin to investigate. And the final one of these, the N, stands for not self or non identification. Now, these uh, hindrances, the ones that I mentioned earlier, the, the sense of wanting or the sense of not wanting, the restlessness, the doubt, or the sleepiness. Uh, this is not a list I've just dreamed up. These are in the Buddhist scriptures. So these are things that were around all those years ago, you know, roughly two and a half thousand years ago, in a very different time, in a very different place. People had minds and bodies that did these things. These patterns were around. Now for me, that really cheers me up. <laughs> You may think, well, what, what difference does that make? But it draws me into this sense of not-self. So, in other words, when, when there's a pattern of irritation or sense-desire around, we're not creating a story about me. We're not creating a story about me when we recognize these are patterns in the human mind that have been around a long time, relating to them in a different way. So you can see how it might work if someone has, uh, say, a lot of aversion around, a lot of ill will around, how easy it is to turn that into a story about, I am an angry person, I've always been an angry person, why am I such an angry person? It becomes an identity. Yeah. Or a sense of sense desire, craving is around, I'm always a person that wants more, I'm never satisfied, why am I never satisfied? Where did that come from? And then we're trying to work that out. But relating to it in a different way, as patterns. One way of putting this is that without self-view, the hindrances are they're just like winds. They're patterns that come and go in our experience. They don't define us. And another aspect of this sense of them being not-self is that they're very insubstantial. Very insubstantial, so they can feel, and certainly when one of these hindrances is around quite strongly, it can feel very solid and very real and very, very um, like 
I was going to kind of, it's a strange word to use, but almost eternal. It feels permanent, something really difficult and solid and real. And one of the, the joys of being on retreat after a while, and particularly perhaps one of the, ex, the experiences of being on retreat, is we begin to see that these things, they come and go and they change and they shift and they're different throughout the day. And I don't know if it, even after a little more than 24 hours on retreat, we can feel that already, how many different things have visited your experience in the time, you know. Are they really so solid? The times when you thought, when are they going to ring the bell? And then that perhaps passed. Or the times when you felt worried about something that happened last week and you think, oh, this is really going to be around now for five days. Why did this come around? And then something else arises. So that these patterns, and again, when we can remember that, when they're around, relate to them not as some hidden or unacceptable part of ourselves, but as a pattern, not as something solid and definite, but as something ephemeral, something changeable. They're so much more workable. We can be with them, breathe with them, recognize, accept, investigate in that way. So I also wanted to offer a little bit uh, of reflection from this sutta uh, called the Vitaka uh, Santana Sutta of uh, the Buddha. Um, and this is not so much really about, about the details of this. The, the, the real feeling or the sense that I would like to offer is that there are many different ways. There are many skillful means of working with our experience, of being with our thoughts, of being in meditation. And so I mentioned again perhaps the tendency that there, there might be at times to become um, drawn to one particular way of working. So I think when I first started to, to meditate there was very, I had quite a sort of active intervening way of being in meditation. So I was in meditation and then there was something, okay, I need to cultivate a bit more loving-kindness. I've done a bit of loving-kindness. Oh, something else has come in, I need to cultivate a bit more calm. Uh, so it's a quite a busy way of meditating, as if we're constantly trying to sort through our experience. And then perhaps in reaction to that, or in response to that, then I was very drawn to this more accepting, being with, opening to what's here. But we can, certainly as, as practice goes on and matures, we can feel that there's so many different skillful means, so many different ways of working with our experience. And uh, so for me, in my understanding, I would very much say that meditation is like an art rather than a technique. An art rather than a technique. So it's not something that we can say, this happens, you know, apply technique A, result B is guaranteed. But we, we're learning different ways of being with our experience, different nuances. And so this uh, sutta is about really ways, ways of working with thoughts, ways of responding with thoughts. And so the, the Buddha mentions five um, things that are useful. And again, you can see the very fact that they're five gives you some feeling of, of different ways of working, different ways of being with them. One of the things that I notice quite strongly reflecting on the sutta is uh, the quite strong uh, language of wholesome and unwholesome. Well, that is not just in the sutta, but in, in other um, areas of the Buddha's teachings. And I just wanted to, to think about that a little. You, you may or may not know that one of the main uh, definitions people often use of mindfulness is that when people are describing mindfulness, they might say it's a, a present moment awareness that is non-judgmental. Uh, and this is a very helpful way, this welcoming quality, that we can. there's nothing that shouldn't be here in our experience. We're not um, saying we shouldn't feel angry or full of jealousy or grief or whatever, but we're opening, we're being with our experience, we're breathing with it. We're not relating to it in terms of pushing it away. 
It was very helpful. Um, and so, but for me, and perhaps uh, others too, then it does raise this question: How do we hold together this sense of of a non-judgmental way of being with our experience, with this language that we find in the the Buddhist suttas, the Buddhist suttas of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome? Um, and the more I've uh, reflected on these, that these things really do uh, complement each other. These things really work together. So the the sense of being non-judgmental is is about letting go of aversion, that habitual reaction to push away. It's about allowing ourselves to feel, allowing ourselves to make space. But in that making space, there's a kind of uh, a knowing and intelligence that can sense that something is to be developed, cultivated, something that leads to the well-being of all, and other things we can feel within them. There's a something in them that if followed, if cultivated, if expressed, are things which can uh, create harm for ourselves and others. So this, this quality of knowing, sensing what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, really sits with this ability to receive all of the different aspects of our experience. So if we find ourselves uh, with a lot of thoughts around connected with what is unwholesome, the Buddha says. His first suggestion is to attend to something wholesome. Yeah? So we notice a lot of thoughts around. Um, we might deliberately replace those thoughts and deliberately attend to something else. And he gives a, an example of all of these, eh, which I, I find really brings them alive. He says, it's just like a skilled joiner or his apprentice using a thin peg to knock out, drive out, and remove a thick peg. In the same way, if owing to some image to which he is attending, there arises in him unwholesome thoughts. By eliminating them, his mind becomes inwardly calmed, quiet, unpointed, and concentrated. So there's something in here about replacing something, replacing a certain pattern of thoughts with something that is more wholesome. So if you find yourselves replaying uh, an argument or replaying somebody's faults, and you just it's just going round and round and round, feels very stuck, we might very deliberately bring in some different thoughts. We could bring in some thoughts of loving-kindness, attend to those. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. See, it's quite an active sense to bring into meditation rather than just, I'm going to be with this aversion. But we can explore, investigate. May you be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Or if there's a lot of uh, thoughts around what's absent, a lot of sense desire, a lot of craving for something different, something better, something else, we can very much bring to mind thoughts of what's present, what's here, what's enough. What's here, what's enough. You might do that here if you find yourself thinking about Barcelona or wherever it is. You could just really think, okay, well, here's an experience, here's a place where, I mean, for me, this is an absolute delight. I mean, so many aspects of Guy House are an absolute delight, but the, the meals that just appear, 7.30, 12.30, 5.30, I mean, <laughs> it just makes me, makes me smile. My life is so simplified doing that. I don't need to think about what I'm going to eat or when I'm going to cook it or all of the stuff around that. It's just there. It's lovely. It's present. There's like-minded people. Present. It's lovely space. Present. The sound of the birds. The peacefulness of the rural environment is all present. So you see how how really bringing to mind those things can be a useful way, again, if if there are lots of thoughts around what's absent, what's missing, what else, what I want. So as well as this uh, replacing or unwholesome thoughts with wholesome ones or attending to something wholesome, the Buddha also suggests we can ponder the danger in those thoughts. We find certain states of mind are very stuck, repetitive, we can ponder the danger in those things. 
And uh, again, I was I was thinking about this earlier today, thinking, well, what does that mean to me? Ponder the danger in things, and I think the thing I felt so strongly about that was they're painful. That was the thing that just really came to me very, very strongly. You know, if you're harboring thoughts of ill will about someone or something, and that's really going round and you're feeding them and there's a strong pattern around that, just to think this is painful. This is painful. So the, the Buddha uses this image of, of recognizing it's like we're holding on to a hot coal. And if, if you recognize you're doing that, your hand is being burned by this hot coal. And as soon as you see that, you would, you would put it down. And this is a, an image that I've thought about over many, many years. But really, as I think about it again afresh, there's something about the, how the seeing and the letting go are one thing. The seeing and the letting go, the seeing, the painfulness of holding on to something like that is the same condition. As soon as I see it, it's like the, the letting go is just, just happens. And this is a, an interesting thing also to explore in meditation, whether we can, as an act of will, let go of something. Or whether very often it's more attending to the feeling of struggle or difficulty around it, really noticing that and the letting go happens. So ponder the danger in those thoughts. I shall read the image for this one too. It's just like a young man or woman fond of ornaments who would be horrified, ashamed and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around their neck. <laughs> it's quite something. <laughs> um, so there's all these ornaments that we might love. Uh, oh, I love this. I have all these things on my shelf. Can you imagine the same ornament with a carcass hung around it. Somehow its lovely aspects are somewhat lesser. These, are, again, it reminds me of certain practices that, that are in the Buddhist tradition that are perhaps not uh, spoken about quite so much these days. But it's interesting for us, I think, to keep alive and to reflect upon as, a, as a, an antidote to a lot of uh, sensual desire, a lot of uh, sensual desire around. Sometimes the, the antidote is said to be you know, to contemplate the different parts of the person's body. We feel a lot of really really strong kind of sexual uh, attraction, sexual desire. It's usually not to the person's liver <laughs> or their spleen or their blood or their bile or their clipped toenails. <laughs> uh, but again, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes people think, well, you know, I don't, what's this practice? This, is, this doesn't appeal to me. I don't want to think about a person's body like that. But, but it, it's, it's an interesting way, again, of pointing to, to that as a skillful means, not to be anti the body or denigrate the body or to see that but there's something about the the un was translated like the unloveliness of something it's a skillful means it's a skillful means um, yeah you might even do that you know if you find yourself really really strongly drawn say to a promotion at work or something you're really thinking that's that's it that's what i want this promotion i want this job more than anything else it's going to be so great to get that. And again, you can, uh, at the same time, just to, to bring some balance into the mind, contemplate the, the unloveliness of it. If the, the lovely elements of this new situation are very strong in the mind, and that's all we're perceiving, the, the, the ups, the good parts, you can think again, ah, oh, well, what about how others may see me may be different, or the extra responsibility, or the extra hours, or the worrying about these things I don't need to think about at the moment. Whatever. It doesn't mean, I don't mean, of course, that you wouldn't then go for the job, but it just these ways of, of bringing balance when there's something in the mind that's overemphasizing either the positive aspects of something or the negative aspects of something in a way that's feeding and generating aversion or craving. Just contemplating the other side of the story. 
you know, contemplating the other side of the story can help to, to bring some balance. The Buddha also says sometimes we can ignore unwholesome thoughts. Now, again, for me, I felt when I was, I was reading this that this takes some kind of reflection. I'm not sure I would just say to somebody in quite a, a bold way, you know, just ignore it. So I was thinking, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And I think in some ways um, what that means is to, to hold something in a, in a wider perspective, to deliberately turn the attention away from something that seems so insistent and so important. And so, again, we have our image of this one. It's just like a man with good eyes who does not want to see certain objects that have come into view, who then either shuts his eyes or looks away. Interesting. Yeah. And again, really, to come back to this sense of just offering a feeling of the variety of ways, the variety of different skillful means we might use in meditation, whether it's sometimes useful to deliberately place the attention elsewhere. To not feel that we always have to be more and more drawn into a pattern, more and more drawn into, well, what's this about? I'm going into this more. But at times, too, to deliberately place the attention onto something different. To withdraw some of the energy from being drawn into those thoughts. The fourth one is to calm the emotions around the thought. So, he says, it's just like a man walking quickly who thinks, why am I walking quickly? <laughs> what if I were to walk slowly? And say, so walk slowly instead. And who then thinks, why am I walking slowly? What if I were to stand still? <laughs> what if I were to sit down? What if I were to lie down? And so he lies down. For so doing, he is replacing each more strenuous posture with a more relaxed one. Yeah. Um, again, I, I really like to take that rather literally, actually. I find that feeling, you, you have this experience of noticing that sometimes you've, you've got caught into a rushed way of doing things or more way of... Um, yeah a kind of certain pattern of quite agitated, fast movement. And we can find, we can calm that, we can slow that down. I had a, an experience recently of not being able to find my keys. I mean, if you, you know, I get these things. And uh, there was a, a lot going on in uh, my life at that time. And, uh, and I think that partly manifests itself in the ability to find the keys. And I just, it, was, it made me smile reading that because I almost did exactly what was being said there. I was sort of walking quickly from one room. Oh, it must be in the bedroom. Uh, not there. Okay, let's try the spare room. Uh, not there. That? Downstairs. Have a look in the kitchen. Not there. Uh, the other room. <laughs> I was sort of almost moving rather quickly around trying to find these things. And, and I had almost exactly this reflection, you know, what if I were to do this more slowly? And I, and I did, in the end, lie down. <laughs> And I, and I lay down in my front room and I said, okay, not sure where the keys are, but let's just be with the breath, breathe, be with the breath, feel, lie on the ground. After a certain while, I remembered where the keys were, <laughs> came back to me and I just went to get them. Um, so it's a rather practical uh, example of that, but how you can feel that, um, yeah, when patterns of agitation can be built around agitation and I need to do more, I need to get into it. And in our meditative experience, I need to work this out, I need to fix it, I need to go more into it. Finding ways to calm, calm the formations, we sometimes say, to, to still around it. Coming back to the breath, coming back to the body. Breathing with those thoughts, breathing with those feelings. Okay, so there are all these agitated thoughts around, can I... Be with them, breathe with them, calm what's around them, come back to the body, come back to the breath. In the meditation instructions I've been giving, we've been, we've been giving, we've been emphasizing this feeling of, of feeling connected with the ground, feeling connected with the cushion. And to me, this is very much about that feeling of a, of a confidence, of a, a place to come back to, a place of calm amidst whatever 
storms and patterns are going on, there's a place to come back to. Come back to the breath, come back to the body, and calm those formations. And the, the final one of these uh, offerings that the Buddha gives is, is to subdue, restrain, or repress the thoughts. Now, wow, this, um, this is quite, again, quite challenging, I think, for many of us to, to hear. The um, image he gives, again, brings it to mind. It's just like a strong man who seizes a weaker one by the head or shoulders and it subdues, restrains, and suppresses him. Uh, in the same way, if when he uh, attends to calming the emotions related to these thoughts, there still arise in him evil, unwholesome thoughts associated with desire, hatred, or delusion, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the palate, he should subdue, restrain, and suppress mental states with mental states. And with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the palate, he subdues. His mind becomes inwardly calm, quiet, one-pointed, and concentrated. So again, I think we have to give a little health warning with this, you know, to say, uh, how do we hold this skillfully? Uh, or what does this really mean? One uh, interpretation that I have of it. Um, actually comes from my times as, as well as teaching meditation I teach in a college and, and those of you who are teachers or imagine being classroom teachers and how you're managing teenagers Friday afternoons are very interesting uh, sometimes yeah. there's a lot of energy around and buzziness and things um, and the different ways to work with all of those energies and sometimes there's a way that you can feel um, in really there's, there's a calmness to it but also a real assertiveness, just to say, you know, that's enough now. That's enough now. It's not aversive. It's not full of hatred or um, needing to condemn anything or anybody. But it's just really being quite clear just to say, that's enough. And so to me, I imagine, again, this is also something that people can use in their meditation at times. Thoughts are coming around for the thousandth time, the two thousandth time, whatever it is. And just to know that, explore, experiment, investigate, sometimes is that a helpful way to respond, to use really quite a strong intention to say, you know, I've heard that thought, I've been with that thought, it's been around several times, that's enough. And I've certainly heard and spoken to people who say, you know, sometimes it just goes. <laughs> um, and to use, I, I had a, an experience recently in, in my college work where I was in that mode with a couple of the students and they, they I just said, um, they, they actually, they started to take photos in the class, which is, you know, just not, you shouldn't have their mobile phones out anyway. So I was just like, no, this is not, you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, and what, really delighted me about it is that when I saw them the next week that the relationship was still there we could pick up in a different way it wasn't it wasn't that something had some sort of trust or confidence or, or friendliness had been broken by that but it, there was enough there was still a warmth that we could pick up again so again the ability to say you know that's enough in our experience doesn't have to add a version to a version so Again, just to emphasize really that what's being spoken of here are a whole range of different ways. Meditation really being not, not a technique but an art. Different ways we can work with our experience, work with what's difficult, work with what feels hard to bear by recognizing it, making space, investigating it. Sometimes using thoughts to think of the disadvantages of being drawn into this. Sometimes deliberately putting our attention elsewhere. Sometimes a sense of spaciousness around it. At other times calming, gathering, being still within it. And at other times too, perhaps a sense of really using intention, strong intention within practice to say, yeah, that's enough, just 
coming back to the breath. So, as we were saying yesterday, the, the retreat really is not about trying to create a particular experience. It's not about trying to improve ourselves in any way. But for me, it's a chance to learn. A chance to learn how to respond wisely, skillfully to these patterns. And it's such a rich and valuable thing to do. Such a rich and valuable thing to do. And we can trust as we do that, as we learn to work with these patterns, that that will express itself in how we live, how we speak, how we act, how our relationships with friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, our relationship with our own patterns. And we become more skilled. It's like a developing a skill on the path, but the skill is a, as an art, not as technique. And learning how to be with our experience in so many different ways in the service of, of living wisely and with compassion. So let's just sit quietly together just for a minute to allow the words of the talk to be absorbed. So once again, coming back to the simplicity of this moment, the body in contact with the ground, the breath coming and going. Thoughts, feelings, emotions coming and going. But perhaps within that, a sense of stillness. A place where the mind can rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.